0: So 2 to the 7th, that's 128 for your non-binary folks, of Greater Than Code. I'm Sam Livingston-Gray, and I'm here with my fantastic co-host, Rain Henriks. It's a nice round number,
1: and I am very excited to introduce our guest, Ben Pollard. Ben runs Local Welcome, which is a charity in the UK that makes it fun and easy to cook and eat with refugees in folks' local communities. As they say, in a divided world, making the time to connect with someone different from yourself is a radical act, which I like a lot. So, Ben, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And what is your superpower, and how did you acquire it? I'm going to cheat and have two. I'm
2: going to say number one is making arancini, and I acquired it by going to art school, which left me time to learn the important things in life, like (laughs) trying to make arancini. And if I had to be pushed to a... I guess a more serious one. Not that there is anything more serious than really good Arancini, but I'm very dyslexic and I have ADHD. I was never really good at reading. I struggled. But a few years ago, I learned that some phones allow you to use a kind of accessibility service to talk words to you. And I discovered that I can listen to them at triple speed and kind of remember it so I've kind of in inverted commas read more books in like the last three years than I did in the previous 30 which has been really life changing actually
1: so I guess the obvious thing to talk about is this charity and the thing that I'm really interested in is how did you decide to do this both in the sense of what made you want to start a charity and also why this and not other things that you could have done
2: I think beneath it all there's a couple of stories. One is that when I was two years old, my family moved to Algeria uh, in North Africa. Uh, I was born in Liverpool, and my parents were like old-fashioned kind of missionaries of a sort of colonial era, and uh, um, with all of the complications and complexities that that entails – but also they were, they were kind of pretty heroic and they would help to smuggle families who'd survived crossing the Sahara and into safety and people would sort of hide in a church compound. And I guess I didn't really learn those things until much later in life. And when I was five, I got asthma and my mom wasn't very well, her eardrum burst and it was not a good day. And um, the second war was beginning in North Africa, so there was the independence war and then the civil war, and that was kind of brewing, like the Earl Grey tea we would drink on the lawn. And we had to leave, so it meant that uh, my family crossed the Mediterranean on a boat to escape what was kind of the first of the sort of modern era of Islamic fundamentalist terror, and came back to England. And the NHS kept me breathing and. Kept my mum hearing. Yeah, those things when you look back are pretty kind of foundational experiences, I guess. Like I said, I went to art school and ended up making films with refugee communities. And then trained as an organiser. And I had started a campaign in that context, asking the UK government to resettle more than 254 refugees from Syria. And about that time, more than a million people had left from the Civil war there. And Germany in particular was kind of allowing more in, uh, people who were kind of fleeing that conflict. And uh, some friends and I thought that 254 humans was not really enough on our island of however many million. And then in 2015, I think it was in August, a photograph of a five year old boy called Alan Curdy. Kind of spread around the world and really kind of put a human face I guess a human kind of picture to what was previously just a pretty abstract refugee crisis and that really changed a lot of kind of hearts and minds a lot of people wanted to help refugees but didn't know how it had some big political implications and for me it had a bit more of a kind of personal resonance because uh, my family had left uh, North Africa when I was five and we cross the same sea and it had worked out fine but this other little boy called alan hadn't worked out and he drowned um, and he was one of hundreds and even thousands i'd actually left the campaign about six months before that I had been kind of having a sabbatical and kind of helping some syrian surgeons to You try and develop some 3D scanning technology for making prosthetics more accessible in war zones, which isn't really, doesn't really, it it wasn't really a sabbatical. But it was very interesting. Then when this photograph happened, it was was very dramatic and it was very sudden. And my friends who were still running the campaign at that point happened to be on holiday. It was like end of August. No one kind of saw it coming. Um, So I just helped some Syrian friends, one guy in particular called Iyad, who's a dentist from Damascus, connected him with some press and he just kind of did the rounds, did Sky, BBC, Al Jazeera and kind of a lot of global news. And then came back for dinner at my house and we were chatting and with some friends we were just sort of trying to understand from him, like what, what is it that he and his friends needed now? They're here, they're safe, but they want to start rebuilding their lives. Uh, and what a lot of them, what he said, is, like a lot of my friends, we want to, we want to learn English, want to improve our English so that we can start using our skills again, so that we can get jobs and move on. And it seemed that of the many thousands of people who wanted to help refugees but didn't know how, there were maybe some connections that it would be interesting, like would people come and have coffee with a dentist more readily than the sort of abstract sense of meeting a refugee? How could we make it? How can we remove some of the barriers for kind of normals, if you know what I mean? Because in that moment, there were a lot of people who had a lot of goodwill, but who are often kind of politically understood as the kind of anxious middle. There's this kind of 41% of people who, they're they're kind of tentative. They're not early adopters. They'll kind of go with what the majority feeling is. What that also means is that in news cycles, when the media, in know, very commas, kind of is kind of architecturally it's just not built to stay to kind of hold an opinion for very long because it's sort of addicted to the new angle and what's next Mm -hmm. so i mean having run some campaigns i kind of knew right we've got maybe maximum of six weeks for the sort of goodwill to last at the time i did obviously no one knew that there would be kind of attacks in paris and there was an incident in cologne and it was within that kind of time frame What we really wanted to do was work out, can we make it really easy for lots of people who want to help refugees to meet them in the flesh? And that's partly in the context where a lot of particularly UK politics, and I think to a certain extent, there's that, that's a kind of Western global phenomenon of people feeling really atomized and distant from power of any kind. And one of the things that emerged in that space over the last 10, 15 years has been things like petition websites. Um, people like Avaaz and 38 Degrees and others have you know, done, in, done interesting work and tried to fill certain gaps. But clicking a petition, A, doesn't build power in my experience, and B, doesn't really give people an experience of kind of public life. So we wanted to try and think, could we use technology – to connect lots of people who are different at scale. And particularly, can we learn from the stories I used to sort of tell early days? Well, like, look, my mum told me not to get in a stranger's car or sleep in a stranger's house, and she'd probably say the same when I put her in her Uber on the way to her Airbnb. And, like, <laughs> what changed? How did we suddenly trust technology? You know, that's probably a whole other conversation because I think that there's a type of kind of commodified trust that isn't the same as kind of solidarity and isn't really the same as kind of non-transactional human trust. But those are some of the things that we were kind of interested in.
1: When you said that you had, you know, early life experiences with refugees and would I be right in guessing that this empathy that you have for these people in their situation was formed through these shared experiences with them in your you know childhood and growing up and throughout your life?
2: Yeah, I think I think the simple answer is yes. It reminds me of another story of partly having kind of grown up with people who weren't from around here <laughs> in all sorts of different scenarios. College, I met an Iranian guy called Hojat. We were we were kind of at a, a meal with some shared friends and he had been recently granted his refugee status but he didn't have anywhere to live. And sometimes that happens. It's kind of to do with the pure bureaucracy and people fall through the cracks. And so I he came to stay with me and ended up kind of living in my student house with me and some friends for about a year. And in terms of how I'd grown up, that was perfectly normal, but I don't think i realized at the time that it maybe wasn't for my kind of peers and friends. In the end, it took seven years for his wife and two kids to be allowed to come and join him so it was a real it kind of created a lot of empathy of yeah just sort of being with him through some of that time and just watching how hard it is and how kind of dehumanizing the impact of bureaucratic systems on family life can be
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to that, that idea of being able to identify with somebody who you've met and at least shared a meal with. Because when a lot of sort of anti-Muslim sentiment comes up in politics and it runs across my Twitter timeline, you know, I immediately think of, you know, I'm ashamed to say that I probably only know one Muslim, but I think of the one Muslim person that I know. And it really helps humanize and put a face on the things that people are talking about. Yeah, very much.
2: When I was an organizer, I was a little bit aware of some kind of sociological theories that I've kind of dug a lot deeper into. And there's a thing called social contact theory Mm -hmm. that came out of, um, I forget the name of the original kind of grandfather of it, but I think it was about 1954 or so, research that was happening in the US around kind of segregation and civil rights. And the theory goes that if two humans who are kind of represent out groups, so they're very different. Essentially, it says like if two humans have a shared activity and there's kind of equality between them in how they're interacting, and also if this activity is in some way kind of endorsed by a hierarchy, I don't know, you're my imam, your rabbi, and if then finally there's the potential for kind of continued relationship then that kind of mixture is significantly likely to reduce our fear and prejudice of each other, but also of the outgroup that we represent to each other. So that's very abstract academic stuff, but it's really helped to inform some of what we do when we bring people together in kind of one of these sort of inclusive rituals.
1: So people who listen to this podcast a lot, uh, if they have a bingo sheet, one of the things that's on it is that I will name drop... (laughs) Uh, Philosopher, so I'm I'm very comfortable here in this academic (laughs) world. One of the things I'm reminded of is um, this this idea called social constructionism, which is this idea that learning uh, and human development happens through shared conversation and interaction with other people.
2: Mm. I'm not familiar with that, but it certainly resonates. I think there's there's a lot here about the kind of I guess the sort of pedagogy of our kind of political biases or the kind of our our subconscious worldviews yeah i think people often don't necessarily think of politics or social interaction in a in a learning context but obviously we you know we're constantly learning how to interact with one another and we're constantly kind of absorbing or hopefully sometimes questioning the the biases that we
0: have This is a bit of a tangent from that, but uh, my daughter, who is uh, now 10 years old, has been watching a lot of uh, a show called Brain Games on Netflix. And it's a very sort of 101-level pop psychology show, but I'm really glad that she's watching it because she's learning about a lot of these things. Like, uh, there was an episode that I watched with her recently about conformity and how if we see a bunch of other people doing something, we will override what we are pretty sure is right in order to go along with the group, by and large. And so... Mm -hmm.
2: Well, no, I mean, it's really interesting. And I think that particularly the kind of gamification of, I guess, positive psychologies or yeah. empowering, I think, particularly young people to understand and, I guess, sort of own their own brains as a, as a species. Since we climbed down from the trees or stood upright or whatever our heritage is, <laughs> our brains have kind of been living us. Yeah, you know, I think it's a really inter- we're kind of an interesting moment in history where we're starting to understand our brains and this huge potential to start to you know choose how we want to kind of relate to them.
0: There's another interesting thing on that show where they a couple of episodes that I've watched they've had magicians on, um, which seems like a you know a bit of an odd thing. but when I stop and think about it, I realize that magicians are people who have learned about specific shortcuts that our brains take and have learned how to exploit them in ways that surprise and delight people and then make them want to give them money. And, yeah, I really appreciate this idea of like understanding the shortcuts that our brains take so that we can at least be aware of them. You know, what, I, what I'm trying to get through to my daughter right now is that, you know, just because you know about a cognitive bias doesn't mean it's gone. It just means you now know that it's there and you might be able to spot it when it happens again.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting.
0: But uh, in this idea of magic is, you know, you, you take that thing and you, you use that effect to uh, do something else with it that you want to have happen, uh, which I think is, it sounds a little bit like what you're maybe trying to go for with psychology.
2: Yeah, I think there's, um, well, in some ways we're just starting to kind of scratch the surface on this. So at the moment we're, we're, we're measuring things in pretty blunt ways. So we're measuring social contact hours, the number of hours that people who are different come together to hopefully interact kind of well. But in the medium term, our kind of vision is to be helping kind of building diverse communities who are developing their emotional, financial, and environmental resilience together. So I guess we're we're quite interested in looking at ways that we can start to measure quite complex and sometimes intangible, always hard to measure things. I guess neurodiversity is also a really interesting part of that, as displayed by me thinking about something else.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, Sam, you you were talking about uh, cognitive biases, and maybe one thing that's relevant here is this idea that there's an adaptationist perspective on cognitive biases that say that cognitive biases are are generally heuristics that we apply or ways that we manage errors Mm -hmm. and they're not wrong or bad or maladaptive per se but they're often applied in the wrong places or in the wrong ways.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I use the word shortcut, but heuristics is, a, is another good one. It, a heuristic is something that is right most of the time, but not always. And so on balance, you know, if you bet this way, on average, you will win more. You'll lose some, but you'll win more.
1: And so, you know, in-group bias, for example, has a lot to do with the way that we perceive refugees and other you know, members of, of mm-hmm. uh, outgroups. And it is a thing that we want to try to deal with, but just thinking about it as a bias to be eliminated, not that anyone here was suggesting that, I don't think is the right way. I think we need to think about it as a heuristic that's being misapplied.
2: Mm. When people talk about heuristics, I normally think of Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and slow, And, and obviously all the kind of economic implications of our heuristics and the fact that we are not econs, but we're messy humans right
1: yeah it's interesting there's this idea that all of these biases and 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 cognitive defects going on in our brains mean that we're not thinking right that our brains are sort of muddled and it turns out that rationality is only one part of what brains do to generate adaptive behavior
2: Mm -hmm. yeah one of the things that i'm interested in in our context is also and, and i'm not even sure when or even possibly if we'll get to this but we're going to be applying for some funding to work with some researchers around social contact theory and i guess on a, on a fairly straightforward level do our inclusive rituals is it true that when people who are different cook and eat a meal together in a certain way that it reduces their fear and prejudice of each other But also then the kind of context that we're working in, a lot of the communities that are quite divided. So let's say kind of this is a generalization, but say lower income, white working class communities where people sometimes have fewer opportunities to interact with migrant communities or refugees. And therefore, their predominant kind of narrative is coming often from online and videos so i think i'm kind of interested in is can what what might it look like to start to tell some of the stories that are that emerge around our tables online and in kind of video content that tries to kind of use and then amplify these methods of social contact theory because to a certain extent i, th- I don't think necessarily as intentionally but sometimes when you see the kind of content that does increase people's fear of prejudice that it's sometimes quite smart and i even wonder oh has bannon been reading his social contact theory and reverse engineering i don't know
1: <laughs> that's an interesting thought
2: uh <laughs> Not one if, on, so but...
1: you, you mentioned uh Alinsky earlier and uh for those who, who don't know Olinsky wrote a book called rules for radicals and it was a very controversial book and one of the, the interesting things that happened is that people on the right very explicitly said, these are tactics that we can apply to our goals. Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, the, the funny thing is that Machiavelli wrote The Prince as a practical primer for the powerful to retain power. Mm-hmm. And kind of consciously, Alinsky wrote Rules for Radicals as a practical primer for the powerless to build a different kind of power. Hmm. And, yeah, I think that's been a really interesting development over the last decade of some kind of smart people on the right understanding those methods and pretty ruthlessly deploying them. But we're heading down. ai uh, don't know. I don't know if that's the, the, um, the direction we want to go. I,
1: I have to very intentionally <laughs> rein in my desire to take things in a very socialist direction. So I'm going to do that now. <laughs> uh, by asking you, thinking back about your experience with with the people that you're now helping and about this community organization building communities together, getting people into contact with each other, what is the role of empathy in all of this for you? Empathy
2: is important, but I and I think we are probably more interested in compassion and also, I think there are even more interesting nuances to the sort of political and theoretical underpinnings that are not just about the old left and right of socialist or other, which is not the question you ask, but I think.
1: Could you uh, explain the, the difference between empathy and compassion? sure this is only my understanding in very layman's terms yeah i'm interested in what you mean and how you're using those words yeah
2: so we've been in touch with a guy called professor paul gilbert who leads a thing called the compassionate mind foundation and he's in derby where we've been working for a couple of years now and we're going to do a bit more work with him over the coming year and we can get some more funding and sort of even more proactively. And compassion-based psychology in in the US is a woman called Christine Neff uh, who also um, has written some, I guess, more accessible and really, really excellent books around compassion, particularly as a perhaps more robust measure of well-being and kind of psychological resilience. So there was a kind of period where particularly in education, there was a lot of emphasis on Self-esteem as a measure of kind of psychological well-being. Again, oversimplifying, there's a risk that kind of self-esteem can look a little bit like narcissism. Even when it is a good trait, it doesn't necessarily indicate the level of the same, same resilience that compassion and self-compassion and compassion-based psychologies do. One of the things that Paul Gilbert is kind of known for is particularly around ptsd kind of shame and trauma um, recovery processes so i was partly interested in compassion a in my own experience of of adhd there's a lot of kind of interesting ways that coaching and developing a kind of practice of self-compassion can be really helpful for kind of untying some maladaptive knots if you like So that's had impact in my own life. There's also been in my kind of wider family, some experiences of PTSD that have been pretty tricky. And I think, whereas there's a sense in which empathy, it it probably is unhelpful to have a kind of hierarchy between them, but it's just a slightly different trait to compassion. Um, So for those kind of reasons that are probably partly to do with my own experience, but also to do with the fact that many people who are fleeing war and conflict have these experiences of, let's say, PTSD or other traumas where a compassion-based approach has kind of been demonstrated to be really effective. So empathy, good, compassion, not better, but really helpful in the context that I've experienced and that we're working
1: with. It seems like an individualistic approach to psychology or ethics or community is problematic in a lot of ways. And what we need is a socialistic approach. Mm. Maybe there's another word for that that I'm thinking of.
2: Mm. <laughs> well, I've read a couple of things in the last few weeks. I've read um, Uninhabitable Earth, and I'm in the process of reading Donut Economics by the amazing Kate Rayworth, who's at both oxford and cambridge and it's very grown up and um if we talk about the kind of the things that our planet and the human species perhaps needs right now i think there's a kind of complex interconnected set of things that do just seem pretty stark and pretty urgent in terms of what the planetary boundaries are and what it looks like for humans to thrive together and i think it's fair to say that we're not doing a great job right now but that a lot of the signs seem to be pointing towards those getting worse unless we're pretty intentional about doing things differently and a guy called bernard crick said that politics is the negotiation of difference without violence and yeah, personally, I think there's there's interesting relationships between the macro, the the big picture kind of political and economic realities we face, and back to these kind of small things about how do we, how are we learning and teaching and kids to be human together well, and I I guess where for me I think it's more than a traditional socialist approach is that I think the idea of the nation state is just a very different thing than it was 100 or 200 years ago. And I think perhaps the biggest crisis that has been happening in the powerful Western world in my lifetime is as much about civil society. And when when we think of the perhaps social progress that has happened in the since the Industrial Revolution, the first one, that's often come from the kind of civil institutions, maybe of kind of faith and labor and education. But, that, yeah, I've realized I'm, I'm doing lots of name dropping as well. Um, but, you know, you've lulled me into a sense of security and safety here. So. <laughs>
1: um, that excellent. That is our goal. Yeah.
2: You're well, in good well company. Done. Thank you. I think it's Michael Sandel who talks about the shift from economy is it from consumer economies to consumer societies it's something like that but it just feels like there's that shift that's happened even you know certainly in my lifetime of identities being as consumers and not citizens and it seems that that just translates pretty straightforwardly into the some of the mess that we're in in terms of how atomized and how kind of addicted to consumption we are. You guys may remember that what's what I think it was Freud's nephew who kind of invented marketing. Essentially, he kind of he'd read his uncle's manuscripts or whatever and thought, I know this stuff could sell things.
1: Yeah, Chomsky talks a lot about uh, Bernays in, right. in discussing sort of how what was originally propaganda. You know, yeah. directed against other nation-states was directed inward to turn people into consumers effectively. The the companies that wanted to sell stuff realized, hey, this propaganda thing is pretty good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when
2: we were initially kind of, this guy, Ead, came back for dinner and said, my friends want to practice English and uh, get jobs. And another friend called Tristan, who works for a very... Well known company. Now, I should probably like ask him before I just name drop him. He was around for dinner and he had the brilliant idea of saying, Do you know what? You should do this in somewhere surprising. And I managed to get Starbucks to um, give us free coffee in 12 cafes across the UK, 12 different cities. He had organized a bunch of his friends. And then we emailed about 20,000 people saying, Who wants to have coffee with some refugees? And it was, kind of trying to be outside of people's normal experience of the kind of worthy charity sector that we then kind of iterated from share a coffee with to finding these kind of shared activities Um, and along the path to that i read the new york times article 36 questions to fall in love i don't know if you guys were familiar with that i think it was back i think it was even before 2015 and i'd been training as a coach at the time and was just aware of or was just starting to become aware of how powerful questions can be and it was in that context that we started to play around with well, what would happen if people rather than sharing coffee or even just sharing food but if they did some cooking together so now ikea sends a little box of simple cooking equipment and uh, at the moment tesco sends some ingredients and oh, a little bit of pretty simple tech Sends leaders sort of seven-step recipes with seven questions that they can read out to a group, and uh, that was the the biggest kind of most profound I guess bit of design that we've done. Really, I think you know we're we're starting to do some we're just on the edge of doing some interesting kind of more technical things, but in terms of design, I think that that ritual, that seven-step recipe with seven questions, like what's your favorite memory of the place you were born. What's your favorite food and can you cook it? I think that's kind of the most, strangely, the most innovative thing that we've done, which is certainly either low or probably zero tech.
1: I think you were interested in talking about maybe what sort of metrics you use for the nonprofit, for the charity to figure out whether you're being successful. How are you trying to measure success?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, at the moment, it's really blunt. We're just measuring social. Well, no, we're kind of measuring three things, I guess. Kind of conversion in in a fairly sort of straightforward tech way. So, can we use Facebook adverts to bring people in so that rather than clicking like on a video on their wall, that they they click kind of for the first time, probably for a lot of people, it's they click. Okay, then. Uh, or whatever the equivalent button is. <laughs> That's been one of the most profound things. So in Cardiff, Emily and Amira, um, who had never done a thing like this before and hadn't met each other, are kind of becoming friends and are leaders of that little local group. Um, and they both clicked on a thing on, on Facebook and then found themselves in a little Catholic church hall. Amira's Muslim and Emily's you know has no faith but through i guess the messaging and whatever it was that we managed to build a certain type of trust they they show up and then they have this really great experience and then come again and then start doing it for themselves so there's that that simple thing of kind of conversion can we get people from facebook into real Mm -hmm. and obviously along that line there's lots of smaller things that we're measuring in terms of kind of signups and turnout numbers and and lots of other in more detail metrics but that's the kind of broadest one with that we're also measuring the financial thing because as if all the other things we're trying to do went hard enough we're trying to also see if we can build some kind of financial resilience so rather than people viewing these experiences as volunteering. We're learning how to communicate and kind of create a membership culture. And that's quite subtle and quite tricky. And we're still learning how to do that. But we're starting to get some a little bit of traction in that. So people are signing up and becoming leaders and paying five pounds a month to uh, make a kind of commitment to keep doing that and kind of taking ownership of their own little local group.
1: So, so is the idea there to not just have participants, but to to turn other people into organizers themselves?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always sort of tentative at using the, the word organizer because it means different things to different people. And it's funny, it's kind of to a alinsky I broad-based community organizer, you know, invoking the word organizer is like a kind of sacred thing. And that's mm-hmm. all pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, what it ha- what it did teach me over a long period of time is that, being a leader is a really important and misunderstood thing so we are trying to find and cultivate community leaders and that's increasingly our absolute focus and i think as a part of that journey we're trying to help those leaders understand that organizing says that we build power by through organized people and organized money and you know that It's not rocket science. It's just the kind of he who pays the piper calls the tune, right? So we want to be kind of owned by our leaders and members. And that means that we're on the very first steps of a long road towards being kind of hopefully resiliently kind of financially resilient through those membership contributions. Whereas at the moment, most of our, I mean, the vast majority is um, kind of grant making. And we love our funders, and thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so when you say financial resilience, are you talking about the organization itself?
2: Well, I kind of mean both and. I think one of our one of our aims is for diverse communities to be increasing their own financial resilience. And in order to do that, we as an organization need to be financially resilient ourselves. And I think for a lot of these things, we're trying to kind of embody... I guess, the vision, the values and the, the things that we're also trying to right. replicate in scale. Hmm.
0: As the son of a sociologist, I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about how organizations sort of evolve these behaviors to protect themselves and, and ensure their ongoing existence, uh, which is sort of why I asked that. But so you, you said both. And what's the other part? Uh, how are you trying to cultivate uh, financial resilience in communities? Like, what are you what are you going for there?
2: Well, I think that kind of comes down to we're pretty early days in that. We we talk about one an aspiration to measure those things of kind of um psychological, financial, and environmental resilience. But mm-hmm. from my experience of organizing, it's things like it's just helping people to understand, even on a very fairly basic level sometimes, kind of how money works. Mm. So that that can be simple things such as like it's far more cost-effective for people to come and eat a meal with us than to eat fast food in a food desert. That cooking itself is, you know, helps you save a lot of money and Mm -hmm. kind of more financially resilient, uh, that people trying to translate their skills to new contexts, whether they're a refugee or someone who used to work in a car factory, that kind of social capital is often the missing piece in helping people to translate to and develop new livelihoods. So it's kind of all interconnected, but those are some of the things that we're interested in.
0: Yeah, certainly. It seems like uh, a lot of people get jobs through those social connections and having that social capital. So that that totally makes sense. Cool. Thank you. Yes. So I think you said you were measuring three things: conversion, financial resilience, and what was the last one?
2: At the moment, uh, well, there's probably several more actually. So maybe maybe I was wrong on that because it sort of depends on what altitude I answer. But
1: among the things so, that we are measuring, yeah, here.
2: we are measuring uh, social contact hours, and in some ways, we're we're probably just kind of keeping track of the number of hours that we've brought people who are really different together. Well. <laughs> Even though we know that there's a lot more detail that we want to put into defining well. So, yeah, at the moment we're measuring like conversion, money, social contacts, and actually good old fashioned NPS. You know, it's literally like
0: net promoter score. Yeah,
2: that's right. That, that's, you yeah, know, it's very kind of tech, uh, but it, it's kind of helpful, you know, when we're trying to do the conversions from Facebook to real. It's a pretty brutal tool and, you know, there's some clever math behind it that makes it hard to get and sustain high numbers (laughs) where I haven't looked for a few days, but I'm pretty sure that we're, we haven't hit eight yet and that's my goal, but we've consistently been above seven and that's still pretty good.
0: Yeah. So as we're talking about metrics, um... I realized that – so, my partner works in uh, nonprofits. Specifically, uh, she has a long history and career in doing work in nonprofits that address uh, domestic uh, violence and sexual harassment and sexual assault. And Mm -hmm. sort of a thing that that I notice with the stuff that she talks about is that it's really hard to get – meaningful data out of a social change enterprise because you can measure things like volunteer hours and you can measure contacts and you can, you know, in grant reports you can say we had this many events but that is the sort of thing that is useful and may help you get more money from donors um, but it's not really your goal uh, if your goal is to actually affect social change and that that's a lot harder to measure. Yeah,
2: that's a, that's a great question. I think so, there's some, I guess, slightly more really important, but potentially more surface things that in time we may start measuring and being able to measure effectively. And those include things like someone's language ability. So I don't know if they still do it, but Duolingo used to do a um, kind of free, fairly clunky, but pretty straightforward kind of English test. Mm -hmm. It took about eight minutes and you got a score. I remember a couple of years ago trying to work out, ah, oh, can we do something where before our guests, you know, these people speaking sanctuary, people who are refugees before they arrive, can we, you know, find a way to get people to take this test so that we can then after X number of meals, can we sort of measure again and see if we can get any kind of correlations or anything. And um, that stuff is obviously complicated and you know, lots of, Sort of disambiguation or whatever required, but Mm -hmm. you know, that there is stuff that we may look to start to measure in the future. Language is one, livelihoods is another. It's just like, what, you know, did you get a job? Well, stuff's fairly binary. Certainly in the UK, there's a huge industry around trying to like support vulnerable and low income people into work. And it's something that we've definitely kind of steered away from um, in terms of our kind of values and but you know there may be some sort of versions of futures where we kind of tentatively interact with those worlds a little bit but yeah those are two sort of examples of things that we could look to measure over the next year or so but i'm i'm personally more interested in the kind of deeper more subtle you know emotional financial environmental
1: resilience stuff So I wanted to go back to um, these cognitive biases and specifically in-group bias and how that affects your work because your work is to try to get people to connect with refugees. And a lot of the people that you're trying to get them to talk to, there's a lot of pressure to put them in an out-group, whether it's as refugees per se or as Muslims or depending on who they are, What is it like in the UK to try to get people to connect with refugees in a personal way?
2: That's a great question. I'm going to tell some stories. I was born in Liverpool. And actually, this is pretty fresh in my mind because I was back in Liverpool yesterday. And it looks like we're going to have our first little launch event meal in Liverpool it, literally in the church that was my dad's church that I kind of grew up in, which was oh. a, a really kind of nostalgic thing. It was great. And I was there with a colleague yesterday and we dropped in, there's a little kind of old people's lunch and it was really cute. And, you know, when you go back to these places when you're an adult, suddenly everything's really small and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. And a friend walked in, a guy called Malcolm. Malcolm's a church warden, and he was like a kind of extra uncle when we were growing up, but I haven't seen him for at least 10, maybe even 20 years. And he'd heard that I was going to be around, and he'd come along to a lunch, and it was just really great. It was just lovely to see him. And we went for a pint a bit later, and yeah, it was amazing. He was a, a lawyer, and he drove a kind of flash car, and we always thought he was really cool. And then he took a kind of semi-retirement or something about five years ago, and now works, he says kind of, oh, I don't need the money, but I like to kind of do a bit of work. And he works in uh, the factory that prints a lot of the national newspapers in the UK. And he does kind of, hes a sort of zero hours contract. He does a bit, you know, a few hours every, every week. And hearing him talk about his experience there among a very diverse workforce was really kind of eye-opening so someone who you know the the community that i was in in louisville when i was very young it's very different to the kind of where i am now in in london where you know i kind of hang out with techies and artists and you know kind of the metropolitan liberal kind of silo but those people i grew up with they definitely voted for brexit and malcolm's experience there like a few weeks ago he was saying that someone came up to him and said mate do you speak english And that was a really profound thing for him because I, I i don't know what the actual numbers are but his experience is that a lot of the people in that factory don't now at the same time his flat that we had a cup of tea in when i went around to see him has increased in in value and the little neighborhood where i grew up has kind of there's even started to gentrify. It was a pretty rough neighborhood. And it's like, it's still, uh, it's still got some characters and, and some rough patches, but it's definitely, you know, the house prices has gone up and it's gentrified a lot in a period where the British economy grew a lot. And there's a thing called lump of labor fallacy, which says that when <laughs> people come, you know, the cake gets bigger. Right. And the kind of very, Geeky, the kind of Sheldon example is post apartheid South Africa, where suddenly like half the population is able to enter the workforce. And if kind of economic scarcity was true, then people would all lose their jobs, right? But no, it turns out the South African economy grew massively. And, you know, I think the numbers bear out. The British economy grew when we allowed a lot of people to come from eastern europe but there's the kind of flip side to the coin that malcolm doesn't feel like home is still the same he doesn't feel like he belongs anymore and he feels that something is lost something is missing something is kind of fractured and it's really hard and intangible but i guess hearing him tell those stories it It feels hard for me to judge. You know, I know that economically he is probably wealthier for the mass immigration that we experienced, but socially we haven't quite cracked it. Like we live in a hyper mobile kind of global world where the stories we tell haven't kept up with the economic financial benefits of people moving around. And also, obviously, the idea of what a nation is and what a kind of neighborhood is and what a community is. so I think certainly when it comes to Brexit, people were asked one question, they answered another. You know, they were asked, "Do you want to be in the EU?" And they mostly said, "We don't feel at home anymore. <laughs> the rules have changed, and many of us were either, are either kind of old and wealthy and Nostalgic and scared, and we want to mythologize history and don't tell us otherwise. Or we're younger and poorer, and the rules have changed. And it's not just that we're left behind, but we were often like not allowed on the bus. So there's kind of justice issues, and then there's these subtle kind of culture and you know, challenges of the stories we tell ourselves and that we tell each other about ourselves and for me the framing of all that it kind of has to be climate change right you know uh we saw what the refugee crisis in syria did when a million people were displaced well you know you don't have to be too kind of scientifically literate to see that well it's not gonna be that long before 100 million people are displaced and they speak different languages and they they are not us so it feels like there's a real there's the kind of economic reality but then there's also just the challenge of learning how to tell stories of a bigger us.
0: So your climate change example is a good one like it's really scary for a lot of people to think about climate change because it brings up a whole lot of like global economic forces and you know I know we we like to think that we can individually affect climate change but really it has to be addressed at a policy level and that's not something that I can personally do a lot about I don't feel like it's tractable I don't know that you know, if I, you know, what action I can take, but hey, you know, I can focus on uh, somebody who doesn't look like me, who's coming in and quote unquote, taking our jobs, whatever the hell that means. And it's easy to focus on that instead. And that gives me something to do. And hey, look, I feel better about myself.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. And I think it, I guess for me, it, it seems relatively self-evident that people who, Want to retain power and have read their Machiavelli, they know (laughs) that, you know, to divide helps us conquer. So telling the communities who have lost their jobs, you know, so I also, I knocked with Malcolm, I went and knocked on the door of some friends and it was just so good to see them. And it has been more than 20 years since I've seen uh, Frank and Elaine and Elaine came down to the Brexit march, um, the pro-Brexit march that was on the same day that me and my dad went on the anti-Brexit march, and yeah, I, I'm really excited about the next time I go up to Liverpool to see if we can have a conversation about that because I want to understand what her experience of the world is because you know who am I to to tell her otherwise? You know, I, I felt partly like, wow, good for you. You know, you got on. A- got on the train and came all the way down to London because you care enough and believe in this thing. And I'm kind of pro-political engagement, but it doesn't add up to me. I, I don't see how leaving the European Union will help, will, will make the future more stable or a better world for her grandchildren, who she dearly loves. And I think she would disagree really think she thinks, yeah, that, that is the way to go. So it's it's a hard line to toe because I don't want to patronise anyone. For example, the EU and kind of neoliberal consensus is really problematic. And I think people who vote Brexit and maybe even vote Trump, the things that they're angry about are often legit. But how do we tell a different and a bigger story that doesn't scapegoat the other? You know, the browner, less male less straight other.
0: Yeah. Well I like that you're trying you're talking, you know, with your friends, you're talking about having those individual conversations. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to do with your nonprofit as well.
2: Yeah, I, I hope so. I think it's important to to it's more than just practicing what you what you preach. I think um as a we're a small team, but I'm incredibly proud of the amazing humans I get to work with. And you know I learn a huge amount every day from them. And I think we genuinely need to try to kind of live out some of these things that include doing the hard work of having, negotiating our differences without violence, you know, having hard conversations with people we disagree with, learning how to disagree well.
1: Sam, this seems like a good time to move into reflections.
0: It does. I'll have to think of what I can reflect on.
1: Cool. Well, I will be name dropping another philosopher
0: because that is the thing that I do. I don't think we've checked off the Virginia Satir box this call.
1: Oh, I was going to mention that, as it turns out. Uh, Ben, Virginia Satir has a a quote that I really like, which is that we come together through our sameness and we grow through our differences.
0: Mm, Nice. Very nice.
1: So uh, this conversation has been a lot for me, as they always are, and people who have listened to this podcast will not be surprised that I like to understand the philosophical underpinnings for the things that I believe. And when we're talking about bringing people together, taking these theories and these ideas about how the world should be and turning those those into action, I, I think a lot about, there's a philosopher named Calvin Schrag, who wrote a book titled The Self After Postmodernity, and his idea is that the self is found in the intersection of discourse, action, and community. The idea that the self is, he calls it praxis-oriented. And so when we, when we take our theories about how the world should be, when we take the, the discourse that's floating around about our models of the world, and we want to turn that into action, which is what praxis is, that that Action is necessarily interaction with the world around us and with other people. There's no praxis that isn't communicative, that doesn't interact with the world. And so his, his model is called communicative praxis. And I think it's very interesting.
0: That's great. So for me, there are two things that stand out about this conversation. Uh, just a, a little phrase that caught my attention early on in the show was uh, the commodification of trust. And um, we chatted about this sort of out of band and, and decided that there wasn't that much to unpack, but I did at least want to call back to it um, because when you were talking about not going in strangers' cars and, and in their houses and then brought up you know, Lyft and Airbnb, for example, it caught my attention because that's a that's something that I've often heard made as a joke, but um, I hadn't really thought about how you might be able to exploit that change in our society and use it um, in the way that you're using it now. And so I think that's really interesting. Um, the other thing that's that really is sticking with me at the end of this call is this idea of fostering these individual connections. And it seems to me to be both a really powerful and effective way of strengthening communities at an individual level. And then it also makes me think about uh, something that, Rain, I think you were tweeting about recently, which is this idea of the tyranny of structurelessness, uh, which is a uh, an old influential essay that, you know, many people have many opinions about. But the basic idea is that if you structure a group in such a way that there are no explicit leaders, you will have only implicit power structures. And I think for me, the real takeaway from this is that in any organization there are both explicit and implicit power structures and i i like that what you're doing ben is that you are working on changing the implicit ones by connecting individuals to each other and changing the way that they both interact with the people that they've met and then maybe see how that affects their their behavior in a larger context so thank you for doing that work
2: thank you that's a really yeah beautiful reflection it's really profound I think one, one reflection uh, is it, partly, it, it's genuinely, it's a real privilege to have a kind of safe space like this to reflect together and um, I haven't been a, a follower of the podcast but I definitely will do and um, uh, there's lots that I, I, I anticipate learning uh, in the future in these conversations. So thank you for the opportunity. It's amazing to have the kind of mixture of the quite practical, quite local, at times mundane and very real, but then being able to just, I guess, reflect in conversations like this and try and situate these very specific local you know, conversations that happen around meal tables uh, with some of the bigger challenges that we're kind of facing across the world. We, we, we did a couple of meals in, did one in DC and in New York and in Toronto uh, about a year ago and have really focused on raising money and doing things in the UK. But I really hope that there is a future where we could have some more meals on your side of the pond as well. So yeah, let's hope that that, that becomes possible one day.
0: I would love to see that. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ben. And thank you listeners for sticking with us for another show. Um, If you've enjoyed this, of course, you can listen to more of our shows. We have a bunch of back ones you can listen to. If you feel like helping us out, uh, you can leave us a review on iTunes. That is always appreciated. Also, if you would like to join us for uh, other conversations along these lines, uh, we do have a Slack community. And if you donate to us uh, any amount uh, on patreon that's patreon.com slash greater than code then we will invite you into our slack and you can hang out with a couple hundred other like-minded folks and it is a lovely loving space to hang out and and have some interesting conversations you might not otherwise so once again thank you very much and we'll be back at you next week